0: thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And we're here today to continue the dialogue about the COVID-19 pandemic and what might have been the actual causal factors. We are joined today by Dr. Francis Boyle, who was a previous guest. Dr. Boyle is a, um, Receives his law degree from Harvard and he has two other PhDs there. He's a professor of international law at the University of Illinois currently, and he was responsible for drafting the Biological Weapons Anti Terrorism Act of 1989. But, and he also serves as counsel for responsible, for the Council for, uh, as an attorney for the Council for Responsible Genetics, which I have and hold an enormous. Prestige because they were one of the first organizations that really highlighted the concerns and the dangers of GMOs. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Dr. Boyle.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on, uh, Dr. Bocola, and my best to your viewing audience. And I I do look forward to our continuing dialogue about this matter, you from your area of expertise and uh, me from my area of expertise.
0: Your training is in law and you have no formal training in biology, but you've been involved in biological warfare agents for for quite some time. So uh, without any specific. So some of the, the criticism against our previous interviews that you have no formal training in virology and, you know, so what are what is your expertise to comment on that? And I'm not challenging you at all. I just want to. Ah, uh, preempt some of the concerns that will come up because we're going to some really deep into a lot of this the biology. So, why don't sure. you just briefly sure. briefly state that, and then we'll go into the into the science.
1: Well, for college, I went to the University of Chicago, which, as you know, is one of the top five universities in the country, if not the world. And there, I took their um, bio pre med sequence. Uh, which was biochemistry, population biology, and genetics, and got straight A's. I was in there (laughs) competing with all the University of Chicago bio pre-med students for grades, and my uh, biochem lab partner uh, went to uh, Harvard Medical School. And then uh, I won the University of Chicago's Sigma Xi award and prize in biology for my uh, graduating year. They gave out uh, one per year and they had to make, usually it went to uh, seniors, but uh, in my case they had to make a uh, special exception because I was a graduating um, junior. So yes, I'm not a scientist, but uh, one of the reasons uh, the Council for Genetics, Responsible Genetics, asked me to get involved uh, was that my um, knowledge in this field uh, was well known to my um, life science friends there at uh, Harvard, on the Harvard faculty, um, and that's that's how I got involved here. I had basic rudimentary uh, training actually very good training at the University of Chicago. And then my uh, professors there, professor friends at Harvard in the life sciences, uh, I guess they vouched for me. So when I was asked to join shortly after uh, CRG was founded in uh, 1983, I agreed to do so. And they asked me to handle uh, their uh, biological warfare work. I did not really, get involved in their uh, anti-gmo uh, work they had another uh, law professor they worked with on that and that was fine with me because all that uh <laughs> biological warfare work was uh,
0: more than uh, enough quite,
1: uh, more than enough to uh keep me busy although i i did keep an eye on their anti-gmo work and of course i uh fully agree indeed is it's interesting uh doctor you might not know but uh Monsanto, which, you know, frankenfoods, when I started out with my uh, uh, Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act to get it passed, um, I had a meeting with a top official from Monsanto, whose uh, headquarters there is in St. Louis, and I wanted to, and I met with him to explain that the Biological Warfare Anti-Terrorism Act was not designed to go after GMO food. And I wanted to assure him of that because I did not want Monsanto lobbying against me. The uh, uh, official from Monsanto said, fine, we do not plan to get into uh, biological warfare weapons work because this would tarnish our name brand. You know, you, you don't want to eat Wheaties uh, uh, made with a bio warfare lab. Well, doctor, guess what? Uh, years later, and as I speak today, Monsanto set up a BSL 4 laboratory oh in its corporate headquarters in St. Louis.
0: Oh my so gosh!
1: So break gosh. down the the uh, building there for where they're GMOing your uh, wheaties. Uh, they are working on every type of hideous biological warfare work you could possibly imagine. Uh, yeah. That's a true story. So Monsanto has finally uh, uh, united uh, Frankenfoods with Nazi bio work. So. You too can have some uh, coronavirus on your wheaties if you want to.
0: Well, well, let's be clear. There, there's no indication that they're working on coronavirus. But from our previous conversation, you made it really clear that the, from your viewpoint, the only purpose of a BSL four biological safety laboratory level four lab was a biological offensive warfare agents. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. There's no. Uh, I mean, you're free to disagree with me, but I know of no legitimate yeah. um, scientific or medical reason for um, a BSL-4 or a BSL-3, none.
0: Okay, so let's go to the, the pandemic oh, now. By
1: the way, I, I believe Monsanto was working on Ebola. So uh, okay. you can have uh, Ebola uh, 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 sprinkled on your Wheaties if you want to. But yeah, I, yeah. I think that needs to get out to those involved in, in the... Uh, anti-GMO uh, food movement. And as you know, now Monsanto has been taken over by the unreconstructed Nazis there at Bayer.
0: That's so it right.
1: uh, doesn't surprise me at all. This is what we are up against, Doctor.
0: Okay. Well, that's, a, that's a tangential, an important but tangential discussion. And there's a, so much to, the, to review here with uh, COVID-19. So the primary one is that it is a and you hear this all the time, but I think it just because we're just overwhelmed and, and there's so much fear going on here that we tend to really not appreciate what this word means. But it is always called the novel coronavirus. I want to emphasize novel. Novel means new, means it has not been previously known to exist in the human species. That's what this means. Novel coronavirus. So it never existed before. The existing And currently held view as that this was transmitted through animals, a term that's called zoonotic transmission, which you uh, heartily dismissed in our last conversation. And and we didn't really go into the details, but uh, since our conversation, there was a paper published in, uh, I think, Nature uh, that— refuted that. And it, and one of the authors was one of the people that we're going to be talking about who really started this and probably designed this whole virus is, uh, over 10 years ago. Uh, so uh, I, I just want to, with, with that in mind, I, I'd like to go into a little detail in some of the documentation to establish that this is indeed an engineered synthetic virus that was not and emphasize not transmitted from animal species to the humans without, without a human intervention. So a- along those lines, there was a paper published by some of the physicians who first treated the uh, coronavirus uh, patients in China, and it was published in Lancet in January. And they showed that uh, the, the patient zero one who was believed to start the transmission, was nowhere near the market. And there were no bats even close to the seafood market. And at least one-third of the patients reviewed had no exposure to the seafood market. So most of the experts seem to use or, or use this as solid data to support that this was not zoonotically transmitted. And I wonder if you have any comments on that study.
1: Right. Well, doctor, I'm, I'm not going to review you know, we had a one-hour conversation the last time. I'm not going to go through all that. But now, um, even if you're looking at the uh, uh, mainstream news media, U.S. intelligence agencies are coming around to saying, yeah, we believe it leaked out of the uh, uh, Wuhan uh, BSL-4 lab. But I did go through with you that uh, article uh, published by the University of North Carolina and the uh, Wuhan BSL-4 uh, lab uh, virologist establishing, without a doubt, that uh, this was uh, SARS, which is uh, a weaponized version of the uh, coronavirus to begin with, uh, that was given um, gain-of-function capabilities and uh, the leading Wuhan scientists took it back there to that uh, laboratory. Uh, I also went through the uh, scientific article where the Australian um, Health Authority, Health Board, uh, working with the Wuhan for um, virologist, DNA genetically engineered uh, HIV into. Uh, SARS, and Mm -hmm. they had that technology as well. So that is all verified in uh, scientific uh, papers. In addition, and you and I uh, were going to discuss this, um, it seems to me that um, uh, they took that uh, back to the uh, BSL-4 and they applied nanotechnology to it. Uh, the, the size of the uh, molecules are maybe 120 microns, which indicates to me where you're dealing with nanotechnology, which, which that's what you need to do in a BSL-4. Uh, nanotechnology is so dangerous. Uh, people working with it, a biological weapons nanotechnology, you have to wear a moon suit with portable air. Uh, otherwise, it will kill you. We also know then that um, that uh, Wuhan BSL-4, uh, one of the cooperating uh, uh, institutions was my dis-alma mater, Harvard. And we also know that the chairman of the Harvard Chemistry Department, who was a specialist in nanotechnology, set up an entire laboratory there in uh, Wuhan, uh, where the reports are, he specialized in uh, applying nanotechnology uh, to chemistry and biology. So my guess is, based on what I've read in in all the literature here, that they tried to uh, weaponize all that uh, together, and that is COVID what we are, are dealing with now. So it's SARS, which is genetic genetically engineered biowarfare agent to begin with. Second, it has gain of function properties, uh, which makes it uh, more lethal, more infectious. It has HIV in there. That was confirmed by the uh, Indian scientists. We've discussed that before. And it looks like uh, nanotechnology, which is why it... it, it literally travels above the air. Uh, you have that uh, MIT scientist uh, who uh, did a study and found out that it traveled uh, 27 feet through the air. Uh, and that I guess was in lab conditions. So that I think is why it's so infectious. And uh, that is what I believe we we are dealing with here. I am not saying that uh, you know, China deliberately released this, in, uh-huh. in, uh, shooting itself in, in the foot there. But it was clear uh, they were developing an extremely dangerous, unknown uh, biological uh, weapon uh, that you know had never been seen before, and it leaked uh, it out out of the lab. And as you see uh, uh, today in the Washington Post or yesterday. U.S. State Department officials were already in there and uh, warned back to um, Washington that uh, the there were inadequate uh, safety uh, precautions and procedures in that lab to begin with. And we also know that uh, SARS has leaked out of other Chinese uh, biological warfare labs. So right now, I, I believe that is... What happened here. And let me uh, conclude, and then we can have your thoughts on it. But uh, I personally believe that until our political leaders come clean with the American people, both at, at the White House and in Congress and our state governors, and publicly admit that this is an extremely dangerous offensive biological warfare. Uh, weapon that we are dealing with, I do not see that we will be able to deal with it, COVID, to confront it and to stop it, let alone defeat it.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I don't share those views, but we'll have that discussion later. I want to focus now on the origin And uh, because it wasn't clear to me in our initial conversation, but as they started reading some of the literature, it really was was shocking because one of the primary investigators on that 2015 paper from the University of North Carolina was she and I'm going to murder the pronunciation of her last name, Zengli. uh, Zengli. But anyway, she was on, she actually published a paper in 2010, which essentially showed, I mean, that involved the uh, weaponizing the the SARS, because normally coronavirus that's typically in bats is not SARS. I mean, the- Correct, You are perfectly correct. The infectious agent that is hitting this pandemic is called SARS-CoV-2, SARS being a, a serious acute respiratory infection. Uh, and co-, co for coronavirus too. But it was, the coronavirus is normally not a SARS. They, they, they manufactured this one to be, and, and as you said, in, in this 2010, they've been, she's been doing this for 10 years. So, I mean, the papers go back and we'll put them in the references if people want to look at them. But then I also want to well, time. Dr.
1: Let me just say, I agree with you. That is why I said SARS was a uh, bio, bioengineered, uh, warfare weapon to begin with. That's and, and that is what, uh, certainly at North Carolina and also with the uh, uh Australian lab, they, they were trying to make it even more dangerous, uh, with the gain of function and the HIV. So, I agree with you 100% on that that SARS was a biological warfare to begin with, it leaked, uh, uh and that is. The origins of the SARS epidemic to begin
0: with.
1: Yes. Yeah, so just I, I just add- wanted
0: to say I agree with that analysis. Okay. And then the Indian paper you referenced actually showed that, that rather than nebulously saying there's just HIV, there's a specific protein, it's an envelope protein, it's called GP41, that was actually integrated into the, the, the RNA sequences of the, the SARS-CoV-2. The one, the, the infectious agent that we're dealing with now, and that was discussed in the Indian paper. But I want to tie in the nanotechnology
1: again. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, also say that was the conclusion of the scientific article, uh, I previously discussed, uh, involving uh, I believe it's the same Dr. Uh, G there and yeah, the absolutely. Australian Health Board, they published it. And it's clear they DNA genetically engineered HIV into SARS, which is a biological warfare agent to begin with. Doctor,
0: yes, yes. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because you mentioned. I mean, you 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 have three degrees from Harvard, and the chairman of the Harvard Department of Chem- Chemistry, Dr. Charles Lieber, was arrested late last year, early this year, uh, by the federal agencies. Uh, for uh, essentially double dipping. I mean, Chinese were paying him, they paid him a million and a half dollars initially and $50,000 a month from 2012 to 2017. This has not been going on since last year. That's eight years ago he started this project. And as you mentioned, his, his specific area of expertise is nanoscience. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as to what was specifically how the technology was integrated into the engineering of this virus. Because I mean, normally viral particles are already at nanotech size. I mean, they're really they're into the nanometer range, typically 100 nanometers or less even. So, I mean, I'm, do you have any thoughts on how was how that, sure, that science? Sure, because
1: the Amerithrax uh, uh, attack, uh, that was nanotechnology there. You had a um, trillion spores per gram on Amerithrax, and just like uh, COVID, it floated through the air, mm. and I was able to determine a uh, um, another professor uh, of chemistry spoke, uh, uh, working on nanotechnology, who was also working at the Pentagon at the same time, so I think it was... Uh, Amerithrax was behind, and and nanotechnology was behind Amerithrax. I think there's a very high likelihood that uh, nanotechnology was involved here, which is again is why the the six months by the six feet by the CDC will get you killed. It's preposterous. Um, Even doubling that uh, will do you no good. If there is nanotechnology, it floats on the air. I believe that is what accounts for the twenty-seven feet uh, by the MIT uh, scientist here. That that we're we're seeing uh, uh, nanotechnology that uh, it, it travels on top of the air, and air currents. Uh, that's what I believe is going on. That's my uh, uh, educated guess here, Doctor. I'm trying to put two plus okay. two. Plus, the notion, the cover story here, that Harvard uh, didn't know what was going on is preposterous. Uh, I spent seven years at Harvard, Uh, I have three degrees from Harvard, I spent two years teaching at Harvard. Of course, Harvard knew that its chair of the chemistry department had this lab in uh, Wuhan, China, where he was working on nanotechnology with respect to chemical and uh, biological materials. That's been reported. They didn't say what the materials were. And in addition, it has now been reported that Harvard was a cooperating institution with, with the uh, Wuhan BSL-4. So uh, I, that's my conclusion, Doctor.
0: Okay, so let me just summarize this for those who may be having a challenging time following the science. So uh, we start out with coronavirus, which is dip, which in this case was found in bats, uh, which is benign to humans. It doesn't even transfer to humans. It was modified uh, by putting integrating these spike proteins. Uh, that that hit the ACE2 receptors, and that allows it to be transmitted to humans and actually integrated into human cells. So that's the first modification. The second modification was to integrate an envelope protein from HIV, specifically GP141, which tends to impair the immune system. And then the third one is that the nanotechnology was integrated into the whole equation to make it very light and easily uh, transmitted, much more so than a t- typical respiratory virus, which is just a few feet, this may go 10, 15 feet, which is more than well, they're saying.
1: At, there is a fourth element here that at the University of uh, North Carolina, they gave the SARS gain of function properties as well.
0: OK, so, what's the gain of function?
1: Yeah, I think they took the SARS and that's undeniable. They gave it a gain of function. So I'd say there are at least four but what-
0: elements. Well, what's the fourth gain of function? I I'm, I only count three.
1: Well, it was the, uh, apparently, there at UNC, they took the SARS and made it uh, more lethal and more infectious, but they couldn't have used nanotechnology to BSL 3. It would have killed them.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm curious to what that well, I fourth they, one was. I, took, I haven't found any papers documenting the fourth.
1: There. Yeah. They took those three elements, and then at the Wuhan BSL 4. They applied nanotechnology to it. That's, that's my educated guess as to what happened here.
0: Okay. So now I, I guess so. we're in pretty much in complete agreement, although I'm questioning the fourth one. It's still a little bit ambiguous to me. But essentially, it's an engineered virus that was designed to infect and cause harm to humans. Uh, their full intention of developing and engineering this virus is not known. We don't know. We can only speculate, but no one's claiming to know at this point. But we do know is that it has caused havoc, and here's where I like to have a discussion because I think well, doctor, what
1: disagree- we do say one one point here though we're having a dialogue, yeah, yeah, which sure. is uh, that UNC uh, uh, work was existentially dangerous, and they knew it at the time. Mm-hmm. If you read the. Uh, UNC scientific article with the Wuhan BSL-4 uh, scientist on there. Let me repeat. It says, "Oh, experiments with the full-length and chimeric HSHC014 recombinant viruses. So notice it's just recombinant were initiated and performed prior to the gain of function research funding pause." Okay, so they admit it was gain of function, it was paused by NIH. Why was it paused by N-A- NIH? Because there was a circular letter put out by large numbers of life scientists at the time saying this, this type of gain of function work that uh, first originated out of that uh, Erasmus University, it was first reported, could be existentially dangerous if it got out in, in, in the public. And therefore it had to be terminated and stopped. So they knew. And then let me continue then with the uh, language. quote And have since been reviewed. <laughs> so yes, they were aware that this type of work that they were doing was existentially dangerous. Okay. Have since been reviewed. And approved. So it, they knew it was existentially dangerous. Uh, it was then a, a reapproved for continued study by the National Institutes of Health. The National oh, wow. Institutes of Health was funding this in the beginning.
0: Yeah, can I ask a question there? Because it appears from the documents that they the NIH stopped the funding in October two thousand fourteen, which is the Obama administration, which was prior to the two thousand fifteen paper being published. But as everyone knows, there's a delayed lag time between doing the study and having it published. So, are you saying that the NIH funded it after two thousand
1: fourteen? They funded it from the beginning. That's acknowledged, right? right. right.
0: But they, 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 they stopped funded- in two thousand fourteen. Did they? Did they? Was there additional funding after that?
1: My, my understanding, I did read the uh, uh, letter uh, to uh, University of North Carolina, and it was basically saying, uh, you have to stop the funding now. Yeah, that uh, was too. So, uh, but then it was reauthorized. So I don't believe they gave them additional money. Okay. Uh,
0: right.
1: I haven't seen that evidence. Although the other yeah, so interesting it, yeah. thing, uh, uh, a footnote here, doctor, uh, I read the uh, NIH pause letter to UNC, mm-hmm. and there were two gain-of-function research projects UN- UNC was doing. The other one was with this uh, Dr. Kawakawa uh, on, uh, from the University of Wisconsin, who had resurrected the Spanish flu virus for the Pentagon. And he, according to the pause letter, was also there uh, doing gain of function work on the flu virus. One could only conclude it was the Spanish flu virus. It did not say the Spanish flu, but they also put a gain of function pause on that type of deadly research, too, to give you an example of how dangerous it is. I mean, we have the Spanish flu. We all know what that is. So imagine giving the Spanish flu gain-of-function properties, making it even more lethal and more infectious. That's exactly what was going on there at that UNC lab. And I suspect the pause on Kawakawa's work was lifted too. I haven't read that. I haven't gotten that far. So um, this was, uh, I would say, again, existentially dangerous work that was going on at that UNC lab. Everyone knew it, NIH uh, funded it, Uh, NIAID under Dr. Fauci uh, funded it as well. They knew exactly how dangerous this was. They paused it and then they resumed it.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. And I'd like your comments on the paper that was published in Nature that most of the scientific community is using to establish the fact that this was zoonotically transmitted. And guess who was the author of that paper? She, the one who did the research to weaponize it. I mean, she, I mean she, Nature is probably one of the most respectable science journals in the world. And uh, she got it published there. So I wonder what your comments are on that paper. That was published in February.
1: Well, sure, doctor. Uh, uh, the the problem is that you know all these. Uh, I don't mean any disrespect to scientists, as you know, uh, sure. at Harvard MIT. I worked with world class life scientists. Okay, my teacher of uh, population biology, Richard C. Lewinton, the number one professor of population biology in the world, Alexander Agassiz research professor of biology and zoology, now emeritus. George Wall, the Nobel Prize winner in biology at Harvard. Good friends with him. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. Ruth Hubbard, his wife, and the first uh, uh, tenured professor of biology female at Harvard a- and a leading force in uh, against biopiracy. I mean no disrespect. But that being said, these uh, so-called prestigious um, uh, scientific uh, uh, journals uh, either are slipshod or bought off by ads put in there uh, by uh, the drug drug industry or something like that. Just to give you uh, one example, and that is uh, I was the one who publicly blew the whistle on the fact that the Black West African uh, Ebola pandemic came out of the uh, US government's uh, BSL-4 lab in Sierra Leone. That went all over the Internet, this, that, and the other thing. So all of a sudden, uh, uh, in reaction to me in an attempt to discredit me, there came out an article in the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science Publication Science. I'm sure you're familiar with that, okay? And this article was uh, uh, produced uh, by uh, uh, a researcher, a scientist, at the Harvard-MIT Broad Institute, okay? Apparently a distinguished institute, this, that, the other thing, saying, oh no, Boyle is wrong, Uh, What really happened here, I did a a, a genetic sequencing uh, on uh, uh, bats, and what happened was uh, bats hopped, they jumped, all the way over from uh, East Africa to West Africa, and that really proves what happened here. Now, by the way, Harvard-MIT Broad was also involved in that US BSL-4 uh, uh in uh Sierra Leone along with Tulane University uh and uh Fort Detrick, as well as USAID and uh CDC. So I was asked to uh, comment on this uh, uh article that was published in AAAS Science magazine and by you know, Harvard uh uh MIT uh broad and you know uh, I regret to say that uh these reviewers just get buffaloed uh, about uh, uh, names. Okay, now in the case of G, it was obvious <laughs> the conflict of interest. So I sat down uh, on a Saturday morning uh, and uh, uh, understand this article uh, was reviewed, obviously by the um, uh, uh, editor-in-chief of Science Magazine and two outside independent reviewers. That's the way scholarship does, uh, gets done, as you know, in all scholarly journals, they all signed off on it. So I sat down here uh, in my bedroom on a Saturday morning, uh, wearing my uh, PJs while in bed, sipping some uh, uh, gourmet coffee, and uh, I demolished it in seven minutes. Because in a footnote, she had completely made up statistics out of thin air. And it was very clear the whole thing was a setup. Well, that was the end of that. So uh, I regret to report that um, you have a lot of uh, uh, so-called scientific uh, uh, articles that basically are junk signs that make their way even through a uh, uh, prestigious publications like Nature uh, uh, and uh, uh, Science Magazine that I've dealt with. Yes, that's been my uh, experience. But in this case, uh, it, it, in the, the Ebola case, there you had Harvard, MIT, brought. So, Harvard, whoa, Harvard, MIT, well, be careful. Roll back a course Of course. Hey, I have three degrees from Harvard. Harvard doesn't impress me, okay? Um, and, and spent two years teaching there at five. Uh, so I w- didn't roll over and play dead, but in this case, she was right there. That that should have been rejected immediately uh, by their uh, editor in chief, let alone by their two outside uh, uh, scientists doing a uh, peer review. Someone should have said, "Hey, she's up to her eyeballs in this stuff." Uh, How can they possibly accept anything?
0: Yeah, conflict yeah. of interest. Of so. Thank you. Thank you for reviewing that. Now I'd like to progress into an area where we have some disagreement. I mean, doctor, does that make sense to you? No, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it it, it, it is surprising that Nature would have published it considering she's got a 10-year history of working in this area and engineering the virus that is well-established. So clearly their peer reviewers either ignored it or were unaware of it. I don't know.
1: Well, but, it could have been, doctor, that Whoever they sent it out for peer review, were also taking dirty money,
0: yeah, to do Nazi biological
1: warfare uh, work along these lines, and they approved it. Although I don't know, you know, what about the editor in chief there at Nature? Uh, that that's the problem, as I see it. But it could have been a, a setup that that this was put in there for that reason. Uh, uh, and, and the reviewers were hand-picked for that purpose. I don't know. You know, you don't know who outside reviewers are.
0: All right, well, let me give an update of where we're currently at with the pandemic. We are recording this interview on April 15th. Uh, at this point, it's infected more than two million people in the world, although the basis for that claim is somewhat suspicious of, because of the testing methods they're using. Uh, but that's what the reports are at this point. And of that, I believe there's 200,000 people who have died from that. Uh, so the how does this compare? I, I don't disagree with any of your comments that this is an exponentially and I want to emphasize the word potentially existential threat, it, and especially in light of previous pandemics, in my view, true pandemics that the world has experienced, like the Black Plague, which has taken out took out 40 to 60% of the population of Europe, 40 to 60%. That was a long time ago. That was 700 years ago, or around that. More recently, a last century, literally 100 years ago, was the Spanish flu of 1918. That took out anywhere from 50 to 100 million people. We had 1.5 billion people on the planet. That translates out to a 3% more a decrease in the world population, three percent. This epidemic, pandemic that the World Health Organization has called it, is taken out 0003 percent. Not le- I mean, this is literally a thousandfold less. So I, I am deeply saddened that people had to die from this. But the the in my view. The major danger, the major threat, and and I believe the reason why this was engineered was to create this fear, this reaction in the public to control the public because a relatively small amount of people are dying from this. And most of those people have comorbidities. They already have hypertension. They have diabetes. They're obese. They're at risk for developing diseases. They're they're elderly. They're impaired. Most of the people who died, and 80% of the people in China who died from this were were over 60 and 70 and over 70, 80% of over 70 in Italy. So this is taking out, it's like calling the herd in some ways, but it's not taking out 3% of the world population. It's not taking out half the world population, which would be an appropriate response if, it, you know, the government response, if it was. So, you know, I just think this isn't that, that this, the, the preventive implementations that the public health authorities have implemented Worldwide, essentially, not the entire world, but most of the world, is literally crashing the economy, going to cause enormous financial complications that's going to lead to psychosocial distress. It's going to k- literally kill 10 to 100 times the number of people who actually die from the infection because of the economic consequences. And let alone the shifting of financial assets that's going to result from the enormous manipulation that's going to, that from the likely the biggest financial collapse in the history of this country, is a result of this pandemic.
1: Well, Doctor, let
0: let me say this. Um, Thank you for letting me finish that, by the way.
1: Oh, sure. I wanted to hear what you had to say. Uh, Certainly, I believe that governments, including our own, are piggybacking on COVID to promote their own agendas of totalitarian control. Uh, I I agree 100% with that. However, uh, I do respectfully uh, disagree with the lethality here. Those statistics that you cited uh, are, you know, completely unreliable. Uh, SARS was reported to have a 15% lethality rate. At the end of the day, 15%, and uh, we've already agreed. That basically we are dealing here with turbocharged SARS. Mm-hmm. So I have previously estimated that uh, it, it, it's a minimum of 15%. Uh, it, it could go up. Uh, uh, someone did a disaggregation of Chinese figures and came up with 16%. A British health, uh, uh, a public health person ran a computer model. He figured 18%. But let's take a minimum of, of 15% uh, lethality here. And I think it's more because, you know, we've got... Uh, uh, but there, there,
0: there's an enormous amount of wealth of data out there. Recent publications, the data you're citing is from early in the epidemic, that show that, the, that it is well under 1%. I've, I've listened to many, more than 10 infectious disease experts that, that clearly acknowledge that the, the lethality is less than 1%. It's not Italy, much.
1: Italy is reported to be at least 12%. And figures that are even in Italy, even the New York Times admitted that they have deliberately undercounted the 12% in Italy because that 12% is only considering people who died in hospitals and is not considering people who died in nursing homes or at home or in hospices or anything like that. And Lancet did estimate uh, 15%. So I think what, uh, with all due respect to you, we are seeing figures put out there that grossly underestimate uh, uh, the lethality of what we are dealing with. As for figures from China, we can't believe they are yeah, telling you. Yeah. They've, They've been lying on this from the get-go. So yeah, I when, think, uh, when, 50% they, when they have right to me. And even when, the figures here, the New York Times today uh, reported that yeah. even the figures in New York are only people who died in the hospital. They are not counting well, people well. who died in nursing homes or at home or in hospices. So, uh, again, I think the um, lethality rate that we are being told, uh, I think, is deliberately being uh, underestimated.
0: Uh, I would agree, disagree and say it's being overestimated, and I'll tell you why. The, first of all, I agree with the China. It's shocking to me that when China had the most reported cases of COVID-19 in the world, about 82,000, and the U.S. was far behind, and then the U.S. passed them, China now has, I don't know, 600,000 or so. China is still at 83,000. They have essentially the epidemic has stopped.
1: There have now been studies saying that could be be off by a figure of anywhere from 10, Ten times, a hundred yeah.
0: times. We have yeah. no idea. I, I I totally agree. So, I mean, they're, they're just lying and misreporting. But the same New York Times today reported that they were adding 3,700 cases of COVID that were never diagnosed positively by blood tests. They were just suspected to be a COVID-19. And the reason, but here's my reason why I think the lethality numbers are off, because to, to get an accurate lethality number, you have to do a randomized, survey of the population and do testing and testing has been abysmal to say that it's been abysmal is a serious understatement. You have to, but you say you have to have a good test. You have to to test a, a random uh, sample of the population and then get, find out how many people have the infection and then how many people die. That has never been done. It's starting to be done. Now they're doing the process. And when you do those studies, you're going to get a much lower number because the studies you're citing, they were testing sick patients. Sure. They weren't, checking people, that's 80%, that 87% of the people who were infected who had no symptoms who weren't going to the hospital. So that clearly is gonna skew the numbers in the wrong direction. The denominator was wrong. Well, Doctor, all
1: I can say is that there is a scholarly book on SARS lethality. I don't that dispute that's lethal. I don't that, dispute that. That was published in 2003. Agents of Bioterrorism by a Professor of Microbiology Zube at Columbia. They, in retrospect, looked at uh, SARS lethality after it was all over, taking into account all the statistics. I have the book here. Um, and they flat out said SARS lethality was 15%. So I believe that is what we are dealing with now, a minimum, a base of 15%.
0: Well, the, I mean, time will tell. I mean, it's clearly the evidence will come out. We will have better testing available. We'll know what the numbers are. And I would bet you dimes to dollars, pennies to dollars, even, that this is going to be well under 1%. Uh, and when we had this conversation, I think I predicted that less people would die from, SARS, from the SARS-CoV-2 in the U.S. Than, than people who died in traffic accidents. That may not be the case. But it's going to be close. And especially well, as of if,
1: today, we've lost 30,000. And that's a gross underestimate because yeah. we're not including uh, nursing homes or uh, hospice or people
0: just dying. at yeah, home. We'll tally up the numbers later, of course, when they have more time to, to get out of this thing. But the initial estimates were over two million, over two million in the U.S. alone. Then they ratcheted it down to. Hundred thousand to two hundred fifty thousand. Then last week it was eighty thousand, and then last last week they again they ratcheted down to sixty thousand.
1: That's the current projection. They're doing that on purpose. The the figure there from the uh, uh, ratcheting down to one hundred thirty thousand or to one hundred thousand. The University of Washington. Washington. Right. 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 Yeah, that was all funded by Bill Gates. So uh, you please tell me how reliable. Any of that is well i i, I, I something wouldn't something believe like anything gates. that
0: gates says but but how does that uh help his agenda i wouldn't understand how decreasing the concern i mean he's all about fear creating fear so that he can I- implement a massive worldwide vaccine uh, mandatory vaccine program
1: sure I, 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 he funded it he funded that figure I, I haven't read the whole study but when i saw it was funded by Bill Gates, uh, i just figured it it fitted into his uh yeah, but I, I, again,
0: I, I did not know I he have, funded it. I don't. I I would be curious how to put, connect the dots on that one.
1: What what I am saying though, is that uh, this study, Agents of Bioterrorism, Columbia University Press, when they had all the figures in on SARS, concluded it had a fifteen percent lethality rate. Well, what SARS? I, You're I, we're talking I, SARS Cov One.
0: SARS-CoV-1 or SARS-CoV-2? Uh,
1: I think it was the uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so
0: but those, it is those numbers well, changed by the day. But the well, SARS-CoV-1.
1: was all over. I mean, for the SARS. But yeah. again, so I I think we have to be very careful of, of looking at uh, any of these uh, uh, studies. But I think the 15% is the best we have to go on for SARS. Well,
0: um, but we, we can, so, so we, we, we can agree to, that. right. And, and and literally in weeks or months, certainly later this year, we'll know what the number is. It's because it appears that the epidemic is waning and that the stay-at-home restrictions will be lifted within, a, maybe oh, even by the time this, this oh, uh, doctors, video is I,
1: released. I, again, respectfully disagree with you on that. The, you know, they say it's waning, but it's not going anywhere. Large numbers of people are still dying. Um, And it does not appear it really is under control, especially if you're listening to any of the doctors and nurses uh, uh, as to what is going on. Second, I would say it is clear when President Trump said he wanted to reopen the country for business, then all of a sudden we get these studies saying oh, don't worry about it, it's uh, it's only 100,000. And by the way, that University of Washington people, they're now working on Trump's uh, committee to reopen the United States for business. So in my assessment, what is going on here uh, is that the plutocrats who run this country, and by the way, Trump just mentioned who they all are on his committee, they're more than happy to come up with some justification or excuse to send out a uh, 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 blue collar, white collar, rural, rural, whatever, out there back into um, an extremely uh, dangerous uh, environment and coming up with whatever statistics they hold want up, to, up,
0: to justify. Hold up, hold up. Let me counter that because... There are states like Colorado who have implemented severe restrictions versus South Carolina that's had very similar populations and a wide disparity in the number of uh, COVID-19 cases and deaths. I mean, Colorado has and I, I didn't copy the numbers down, but it was two or three times more deaths than South Carolina. The only reason for implementing these stay at home restrictions are to flatten the curve, the term that many people have heard ad nauseum by this time. And the reason that they want to flatten the curve is that we don't exceed the capacity of the hospitals to take care of these patients, but it's not going to, it has nothing to do with causing the infection to go away. That is only done by having the infection exposed to healthy people with a healthy immune system that can develop, uh, Innate immune responses—that was was the way that we're designed to control infections naturally. And if you're healthy, you'll do that. If you're not, you're, it could be highly problematic. So, uh, it, well, just, Doctor, again, with all due respect, uh, uh, there is no evidence
1: uh, so far that if you're exposed and then uh, uh, you develop antibodies, that you can't be reinfected. As a matter of fact. Uh, These cases have already been uh, reported in in South Korea that uh, people who were exposed, got over it, came out, and it came back. And the second time it came back, uh, uh, it was even uh, more dangerous than the first time. So there's no evidence to believe that uh, uh, immunity is going to work. I would agree with you immunity would work Uh, say, on measles or mumps or something like that. But again, doctor, we are not a non-bioengineered virus. We are right. We are dealing here with uh, uh, DNA, genetically engineered. Actually, it's RNA. That we've never seen before. And there is no evidence that even if you develop antibodies after the first infection, it's going to make a hill of beans difference the next time along the way. We have no evidence to that effect so far.
0: When you're dealing with uh, synthetic biology, which is essentially what this is, because in natural biology, we, we know precisely, we have the historical facts in, in, in history to, to understand how we can av- uh, approach a natural threat. This is not a natural threat. This is an unnaturally synthetically laboratory-derived doctor- threat.
1: As a matter so, of fact, if you read that UNC article, it says exactly it was dealing with synthetic molecules. It's uh-huh. in there in the footnotes. And in my biological weapons anti-terrorism act of 1989, I specifically criminalize by that name synthetic molecules. Yes. And that is why at the first, the, the whole synthetic biology uh, uh, movement, science, was set up by the Pentagon's DARPA. They 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 funded the whole thing, Uh, and it's DARPA money that is behind synthetic biology, gene drive, all the rest of it. And that is why at the first uh, uh, convention of synthetic biologists, in their final report, one of their key recommendations was the repeal of my Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act, because they fully intended to use Synthetic biology to manufacture biological weapons, and that was used uh, at that UNC study. That is also part of COVID. Yes, I agree. So you, with
0: so you're a professor, a professor of international law. You drafted that international treaty on bio, bio warfare agents uh, and weapons. So. And that treaty still is in force right now in the United States, and I suspect maybe even China is a signatory to that treaty. So under the current existing law, are there ramifications for violating this treaty? And if so, how do those get enforced?
1: Sure. I agree that, that the law still applies. It, apply, it It provides for life imprisonment for every everyone who has done this. Uh, I resisted pressure from the Department of Justice put the death penalty in there because I'm opposed to the death penalty for any reason. But all these uh, um, so-called scientists uh, involved at the University of North Carolina and uh, everyone who funded this project knowing that it was existentially dangerous. uh, And that includes uh, NIAID, Fauci, NIH, and then if you take a look at who were the scientists there, not only did, did, was it UNC, Food and Drug Administration, they are now pushing vaccines and opening uh, up the country. Someone from the uh, Swiss Institute of Microbiology, I'm not familiar with them. And then was it say? The Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard. They, Harvard was involved in that uh, UNC Wuhan for uh, um, uh, uh, SARS gain-of-function work. It's right there. So, of course, uh, Harvard knew what was going on uh, out there at the Wuhan BSL-4. Uh, they were a cooperating uh, institution. And this was also, uh, since since uh, WHO uh, is in the media, it, it came out that this is a WHO-designated research lab so ask yourself why was who designating an approved bsl4 lab they knew full well that this lab well, was part, the of, the, part, of, the answer, of, part of the answer
0: to that could be who who is the biggest funder of the world health organization it's the bill and melinda gates foundation that's correct yeah, they're, they're their budget right yeah so uh now, you have in the past, I believe it was in the late, late 1990s, maybe early 2000s, successfully prosecuted international criminals like this. So what, what how would you prosecute these individuals you name for violating this treaty? I mean, how well, do you go about it? How do you enact I, I, it? How do you, how do you get the process rolling?
1: There are two ways. First, uh, you're, you're going to have to uh, pressure uh, the Department of Justice there. <laughs> uh, to prosecute these people on under bar. Uh, that might be very difficult to do. Uh, federal statutes require uh, indictments to be brought uh, by U.S. attorneys. However, just with respect to North Carolina, uh, state law applies there too. And I haven't researched North Carolina law. However, uh, I was originally hired here to teach criminal law, and I taught it for seven or eight
0: years. At the University and, of Illinois, right? where right, you're College
1: of Law, right, for law school. Um, and uh, to have criminal intent, one of the variants of criminal intent is the demonstration of grave indifference to human life. And that is the criminal intent necessary for homicide. So, in my opinion, and my advice would be if uh, we can't get a uh, bar to sign off on prosecuting these people, that the uh, district attorney, state's attorney, attorney general out there in North Carolina uh, institute uh, and indict everyone involved in this. Uh, North Carolina uh, work for homicide, Uh, and that could include up to including uh, murder. Uh, Malice aforethought, again, uh, one of the uh, elements can be manifestation of grave indifference to human life, and it's clear from this uh, uh, article they knew it was gain of function. They paused it because it was existentially dangerous. It was then reapproved. And they continued it. So I think uh, a good case could be made, uh, certainly for indicting these people under North Carolina law by uh, North Carolina legal authorities if the federal government is not going to do it for us under my law. But again, I want to make it clear uh, I haven't researched North Carolina law.
0: Okay, well, that's an intriguing. Opportunity for the future, as uh, I think I think probably now it's not a wise time where people are just scrambling to maintain some sense of sanity and address the fear that's a result of this epidemic. So, but down the road, I mean, we've got to stop these criminals from, from repeating this again because this is a recurrent theme. these These pandemics, these epidemics happen every two years or so. and and this and they've already said this is coming back. This is going to be a new a seasonal covid flu or, SARS SARS CoV two flu, you know, just like the influenza, so which could be another confounding variable in the in the the fatality rate too. I think a lot of the in the mortalities that we're seeing are being confused with the regular flu. Not all of them certainly, but it's they're they're uh, conflating the two diseases uh, just to increase the COVID two, and because there's financial incentives, the, and I, through Medicare, the, the it's COVID. All about money. Right. Yeah. And yeah. If you get a, a COVID 19 diagnosis, you get you get thirty-nine right. thousand dollars. And then you know, you put them on the bed earlier, you get another another thirteen thousand. So
1: and you know that is why I said it in our last uh, uh, dialogue, we immediately must shut down all these BSL threes and BSL fours, they are all existentially dangerous. Uh it can happen again, and indeed. If you have a look at that Nadler and Cohen um, documentary, Anthrax War, I think it was about 2003. And it was about the dangers of BSL-3s and 4s. I was a consultant on there. I'm repeatedly in there. And at the end of the documentary, they have me saying, this is a catastrophe waiting to happen. And it has now happened. Here we are. It's staring us in the face, Doctor.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree that it's a catastrophe, but for different reasons. I think this is not the catastrophe of the Spanish flu of 1918. This is not the catastrophe of the Black Death which was truly an enormous human ca- catastrophe. I, I mean, it was just shocking and, and uh, we're going to do, we're uh, future article is probably going to be on after this interview that compares the Spanish flu and the, the swine flu and, and the, the COVID-19 epidemic. But when the people with the Spanish flu, when they got it, there were healthy people that got it and literally within eight hours, eight hours, they were dead, dead. This thing was incredibly lethal, and obviously we had no bioengineering techniques back then. There were no BSL three or four labs, uh, but uh, you know it's it's just interesting how how lethal that infection truly was.
1: Well, okay, doctor, I I okay. think we've covered all the ground. I, I, I think we've agreed on a lot of things. Perhaps we respectfully disagreed
0: on some things. Yeah, if we uh, if uh, we agreed on uh, everything, uh, it wouldn't be fun, would it?
1: No. It wouldn't, and it wouldn't be uh, useful if we agreed on everything, sure. And all right, the whole well, thanks purpose for all your work, and we, to may be, dialogue.
0: we may be connecting with you in the future to, to follow up on the uh, tr- prosecution for that uh, treaty that you got enacted.
1: Yeah, I try to get the word. I, I, I've recommended that the governor out there, or even the uh, uh, mayor of Chapel, Chapel Hill, should send either state troopers or police out there and shut down that lab and seal it off uh, as a crime scene. Sure, that should be done. Okay, but thank well, you, Dr. I, I have thank to you. go. I do appreciate the uh, uh, dialogue we had today. It was, I, I thought, it very productive. Thank
0: you. All right. Thank you, too. Appreciate it. Bye.
1: Sure. Bye.